Hello, everybody. My name is Emily Zimmer from Music Knowledge, as many of you might know. My my friend and colleague, Mike Newmeyer is here. So if you're out there, give him a virtual round of applause. Okay. Um, so thanks so much for being here, Mike. How are you? You're welcome. I'm great. All right. So um, if you could sum up in a few sentences, and I know this is hard for all of us working musicians to do, but if you could, how would you sum up the jobs that you do in music? I guess maybe I would, I'm making this up right now, like a, do it. a wheel, a wheel approach. And I think for me, it's music education is the central part. So I'm a music teacher, but then I might compose music for my students. I might record music for my students. So I like composer, session musician. Maybe I even go and do live performances with my students. Um, I think then it, I'm lucky enough to teach some stuff where I'm teaching them about film scoring or licensing. So I'm attempting to get music and I've had like a couple of landings where I've had stuff licensed. So can you help me out and keep adding to the spokes? Um, Cause well, I'm running out. I'm almost like, Oh, what else do I do then? What I know Mike as first. And I think the reason that we met and connected um, was that, you are the, among other things, the music business class instructor at my alma mater, Milwaukee area technical college. So it's yeah. not just music education, which seems to be the kind of the core of your uh, mission, um, but it's music business and music career education. Yeah, I really enjoy working there, teaching and, you know, Essentially, every time I'm teaching the music business class, I'm showing them what I'm doing. And every time I revamp a lesson, I'm like, oh, wow, I need to start doing this. Some of these little things I'm teaching. I have exactly the same experience here at uh, Music Knowledge and, and with the people I teach and coach privately. Yeah. I feel like when teachers always said, oh, we learn so much by teaching you, you teach us. Now I think I'm getting what they meant. It's a conversation, you know, and uh, there's a little give and take from everybody. What that made me think of is I also do marching band. I got into the marching band circuit. So like I teach with Oak Creek High School. Okay. Okay. And that always feeds, that feeds the compositions a lot because I get to write for them sometimes. Oh, really? So now we're, now we're verging into composition Yeah. and, and teaching at kind of the high school level. I'm, I'm a marching band, high school marching band alum, by the way. Sweet. Never mind what state of mind I was in when I was in marching band, but let's say it wasn't a very attentive one. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said for the fact that sometimes when you don't think a child is listening, they are. Yeah. And I, sometimes I also feel like the more accountability you give and you give that respect, those high schoolers really take care of business. Um, and then maybe there is that one inattentive person. Well, as a team, they can 
they can help that person along. You know, hey, everybody, have you seen Emily? Yeah, I mean, it's it's that is a conversation as well. That's a conversation between students and their peers and the rest of the school. <laughs> it's all these conversations that teenagers have within themselves, which is just, you know, a myriad of swirling um, cycles that they go through and questions and answers, hopefully answers, um, as well as a conversation between mentor and student and student mentor and fellow student. Yeah, the better leaders you have within your group like that, they really help each other out. And then the next generation of leaders is good. Yes, and I think that that needs to apply to the music industry and the music kind of freelance industry um, that, that many of us in this group work in. We all need to lead each other in, in our kind of zones of genius. And uh, it has to be an ongoing um, kind of mut mutual mentorship. We can all be leaders in different ways and we, we kind of need to because we don't, this is like a leaderless industry. Yeah, I feel like sometimes for years there was a little bit of, you didn't exactly know the answer to some of these music business questions and was it guarded? Maybe yes. not. <laughs> yeah, like I maybe yes. I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt, but yeah, I felt that way. Almost like nowadays with Ari Herstand being a good example, he just pries it open and says, here it is, open book. Here's the music business. This guy's getting paid for this. That goes to the record company. And it, where huh, for years it was guarded. Yes, I do believe it was guarded. Do I believe it was guarded maliciously? No, not 100% of the time. Um, because business is business. And the way that a record label funds itself is through getting a cut of, of um, the artist, what the artist is producing. Whether that be live shows or whether that be album sales or, or it used to be album sales, today it's streams. Uh, yeah. Or whether that be merch or whether that be public appearance. I, I mean, tons of different things. Um, and that's 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 not unfair as a concept because if a, if a label is doing a lot for you that you can't do for yourself and they could do tons of stuff that i am bad at <laughs> and don't have time for so that's fair just like any service provider but it like any business that's got layers like that the door is open toward greed and corruption the door is open to to unfairness and uh it, it that happens a lot in the entertainment industry because you're dealing with artists and we just want to be artists and we don't want to translate legal language and read a very long confusing 16 page contract and things like that so that fact itself was and is taken advantage of. Sure. I, I feel like my view on the business side is that I always think of the one album is going to make it big, but nine albums are going to flop. And yeah. the record company is taking that risk and putting the money into the nine albums in order to get that big one that wins. But then... So it's like I understand, but I don't think any artist should be left owing a company money 
afterwards, you know, with like advances or, or getting money for a, a record. And then you, you are being, your royalties are being fed to them and you're not, you're kind of in debt to the company until that recoups. Literally in debt. Yeah. So I, and there's other deals maybe where it's not even recouped. There's like, you actually might owe them money. Yes. depends yes. on what you yeah. sign. And that I don't agree with, but I do understand that they have to make money. And then they're, they're kind of struggling in this changing industry. Every time the medium changed, I think record companies are, would have to pivot. Oh, absolutely. And they've taken their biggest pivot in a hundred years, you know, recently because uh, things like streaming came, came about streaming and downloads and it, and it effectively caused the 20th century music industry structure to collapse. It's got to be said it, it collapsed and it took a long time to kind of rebuild itself, which it's still doing. So record companies, as we know it, are different now from what they were in the 20th century. They're different now from what they were 10 years ago. Yeah. And they're readapting and they're restructuring and they're reevaluating their, their mission and their purpose and the way that they structure that. So what we see are a lot of huge, huge entertainment companies. That's why popular music, a lot of popular music, a larger percentage than in the past, um, is is a package deal. You've got an artist who can sing, dance, act, and have a um, further-reaching image, and it's and it's not necessarily about the quality of the music. The music is not. The highlight it can still be good but the music is not the highlight the visual is the highlight even when they put on live shows it's explosions and pyrotech the pyrotechnics industry has got to be miles ahead of where it was 10 years ago 15 years ago because that's the show is lights and pyrotechnics and dancers and you know and that's great that that provides opportunities for people who are in that form of entertainment and i and i support that form of entertainment but a lot of musicians are bitter because it's not necessarily about the music and that's where you know i and many of my colleagues kind of separate from the notion of like let's go get a record deal you know, that that and I've seen so many people who make genuine great music get signed and spend months, if not a year, having a record label try to mold their image into what's going to sell. And then they invest all of this time and they have to take off of work and they have to leave their spouse and they have to do this and this and that to do it for months and then yeah. oh, I, I'm sorry it's the end of the fiscal year and we could only f uh, afford five artists this year and, and you're number six so see ya you know and it's the age-old story of like coming home destitute that's why I think I've kind of pivoted to the do-it-yourself and I in my music business class I do lean on the do-it-yourself I'd say at a certain point maybe there's something a record company can offer when you have a pretty big following and then the only way to reach more people or get that concert, that vibraphone concert with lighting, like I might need a, a record company to do a really amazing international tour 
or they could help me. And so maybe there could be a deal to be signed at that point. But before you get there, nowadays, we have the power of the internet. And it's like the fans support the artist. And there doesn't have to be the middle person um, kind of collecting out of each other's right. It's like we have all these platforms where Bandcamp is a really good one, I think, because they do take a little cut. They are a middle person, but then um, Spotify is a little bit different. That's like, it doesn't real, it's more like Spotify is a business card nowadays. It is, yeah. You know, unless you get a million streams, you're going to get like $4,000, where that a million albums compared to a million listens, whew, that's different. And then I always think when I go out to shows and I have my albums that I've printed at super duper in madison i love super duper. shout out right. shout out to people we know and the mom and pop shops that we can work with and when people buy that merch it makes me realize again like yeah this is part of the do-it-yourself this is another revenue stream you know in the spirit of it not being a record label hater fest because that's not how either of us feel <laughs> at the core yeah no way there, you do have to be in kind of specific circumstances for for one to benefit you. You know, I, I know people who are on smaller indie labels that are really good for them because they not only got them like a badass backing band because they kind of have session and touring musicians they're associated with, mm -hmm. um, but you know, got their records into, you know, everything from high-profile playlists that maybe you wouldn't be able to contact on your own uh, to, yeah. to like, vinyl collecting clubs and things like that that have, like, subscription boxes and you get a vinyl every month and this and that. You know, and to, to shows that they sponsor, live shows that they sponsor and things and good opening uh, gigs and things like that. And that's that's a way that you can benefit from one. Then if you're going toward the major label kind of sphere, I think that is good for people who haven't sculpted their sound or image quite yet. I think that's, and that's a legitimate place to be. Maybe you have some songs and you have kind of a vibe stylistically, but you don't necessarily have like the whole image and the whole like set genre or instrumentation or whatever put together yet. A major record label is there to sculpt you into something that's going to have a definite image and a definite sound. And ultimately it's because being able to define it kind of is, means that it can sell and it can gather a, a, a specific audience that's measurable and predictable and you know that's business there's nothing wrong with that but a lot of musicians who already have their sound crafted and already have an image they get butt hurt when they get onto <laughs> record labels because the record label wants to craft that into something more sellable so change let's change your hair color let's change the name of the band let's let's move toward we like your country stuff better let's move out of americana and let's pursue the country thing super hard you know and then it's disappointing because it's like well my whole creativity the whole thing that i just made up is gone yeah 
And then the hard thing is sometimes they might sign someone because of their songs that exist already. Mm-hmm. And then there might be a little bit of a clash because someone starts to hire a, a producer and then the producer has some certain thoughts maybe and they're, they ask for certain changes and then there's like the sellout conversation of like, sure. oh, don't do what they're saying. You're selling out. Do what you want to do. And I always think about like bands like Green Day, you know, once they got really big, did did they, how much of that is selling out? Maybe we could even say the Beatles or would, if they did what George Martin's told them to do all the time, are they selling out? Are they not being original? So I don't know. Maybe I'm even being devil's advocate where maybe there, there's some cases where the collaborations created something cool and new, but I definitely know there have been situations where the artist did not like it, did not want to change, and it wasn't a good match. You know, I think it's kind of all of the above. You know, we just got out of a period of time, like a 60, 70 year period of time when I, I, and I, and I would love to look up and probably will at some point, the specific numbers. I suspect that we just got out of a time period of great, great surplus and great abundance of money and resources in in the record industry and i think when you've got a got a i don't want to say surplus because i don't know the numbers but that's what it seems like to me when you've kind of got a surplus when you've got tons of money to play with when you're thriving that opens the door to more originality because you're not desperate to sell you know you're gonna sell i think there's there's perhaps less overbearing circumstances where people were super, super controlled into doing it this way or doing it that way. Um, and, and bands got to maintain more of their original identity. But that being said, I, I, I can only guess because I don't know the numbers. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of a, I just watched a documentary on the Abbey Road Studios. Mm-hmm. That's on Disney+. Plus. It was cool to watch and hear Paul McCartney talking about that they had gotten their record deal. You know, this is after the first album, after some nice runway and popularity has gained, and they were given a very good record deal. And anytime they went into like this big room in Abbey Studios, it was free. It was like on their contract. And so he said, we would just go in there like all day for weeks. And I was like, wow, that does seem like, that caters to them creating original material where nowadays if it's like ooh, limited time i'm in the studio and so maybe there's not as much as that foster creativity though hmm that's a good conversation there is there enough of an abundance of money coming into record labels today you know that that people can spend essentially unlimited time in the studio. I mean, uh, when you say unlimited studio time, I just about lose it because (laughs) the value of studio time is so expensive 
And, you know, anytime I've ever made a record, it's like we're in a rush. You have to really just know exactly what you're going to do and know exactly how you're going to do the songs before you go in. Because then you just go in and you track, 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 track. And it's really fun and it's really awesome in a different way. But can you imagine if you had just open studio time? I mean, wow. And that's why they used all those cool instruments and they, because they be like, let's go try that. Let's do that honky tonk piano. Let's try the Mellotron. And they have all these instruments in their tracks because they had that time to just kind of mess around. Using a producer, which that sounds so inhumane saying using, working with a producer. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> is, uh, I think is great. I would love to work with a producer every time I make an album. I mean, technically I am a producer of my own stuff and whatever, but I would love to work with an outside producer who that's their main gig and they're just really good at it. But yeah. again, it's, you know, it's a it becomes a funding issue. There are scenarios where you don't want to have an outside producer because you are really good at doing it and you already have your shtick all mapped out. On the other hand, there are some times when you are super original still, but you just need somebody there to give you that extra little finality to, or like, like ref, refine your uh, idea. A second set of years and a fresh opinion. And if it's someone who has a bunch of number one hits or something like that, I'll tell you honestly, I would be sensitive no matter what. But that would make me trust them and say, you know, yeah, I'll move, I'll move that little section. We'll do a little vamp up into the chorus because this person has credentials to prove that their idea is a, is a good second opinion because I am definitely a self-producer as well. Those of us who are generally self-produced, there's always that um, line between it being production being just something that you do out of necessity and wanting someone who is beyond just necessity, who's like an expert at that exact thing. You know, it's like, where's the line between me being an expert at production <laughs> and some producer whose main thing is that, you know? Yeah. Like they have credits on numerous albums and then, once you kind of realize all that they've done and all of the artists that they've advised, you're like, wow, that's why those tracks, sometimes it's why those tracks landed. The hook came in 30 seconds earlier and it was the producer's decision to get the hook in earlier. Right. Like, wow, they really do know how to craft a hit based on the radio standards and based on the, the mainstream standards. Sure, and even if you're not, you know, going for the the radio hit or whatever, and even if you don't give a crap about somebody's credentials, I mean, there's there's plenty of local people or more independent people who don't have any of those credits, like hit song credits and things, who are really, really great at production. And uh, the value of having just the outside perspective. Yeah. I think it's Second just, set of eyes. Yeah, looking at, it's really hard to see what you're doing. It's really hard to see what you're doing from the inside sometimes. I mean, I've studied and studied and studied, and as have you being a composer, 
different compositional techniques, uh, much like a an author studies different literary devices, you know, and we can see that from the inside, we can try to craft it using those strategies from the inside, but it's going to look different from the outside. Yeah, and there might be a spot where I do have this thought, this one part's a little repetitive. I have had that thought while I'm mixing, but I've, I've ignored it. But then the producer looks at their watch, and then I know that that spot is repetitive. Oh, 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 am I repeating? Or, and then they might even say it. Hey, you know that? Let's, let's, let's add something in there. You're just kind of vamping a little long there. I have found if you're hooked up with a producer who's trustworthy for whatever reason, could be credentials, could be that you know them already, could be someone recommended, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They're usually right <laughs> in that circumstance. Yeah. Yep. You know, how, about, how about this lyric instead of that lyric? Oh, the, the hook is a little lame. Maybe you could explore that a little bit more. Yeah. At first I'm thinking, oh, screw you. I, my thing's perfect. 10 minutes later, you were right. Let's do it differently. Yep, I really agree. <laughs> can you tell us what your main, if you can, I know you're a very versatile musician, but if you could, could you sum up your main instruments and genres? I really have been playing vibraphone a lot lately, but I really did a lot of marimba before that. So in general, that's like mallet percussion, keyboard percussion. Awesome. And genres, it started out as relaxing marimba music, like classical style maybe, background. And then it really has evolved where I started doing a lot of improvisation. So it's during the shutdown, I would say, the pandemic shutdown, I evolved a bit more into jazz. And my latest album is has vocals and has lyrics so it's like this motivational music with that same marimba vibraphone sonority but just a little more improvisational with chord structures like jazz can you tell listeners where to find your music and what your latest album is called yeah definitely i have it up on bandcamp i have it up on spotify and, you know, when you click on that third-party provider where they're distributing your music, I click on all of them. So, really, wherever you listen to your music, you should be able to find the latest album, which is called Starting to Dream. Very nice. And that's just under your first and last name? Yeah, Mike Newmeyer. Under your government name? Yep. <laughs> All right, very cool. And you, you mentioned, I, I do want to get into what it means to place your music uh, into distribution and what you meant by clicking on all those extra um, streaming outlets. But before we get there, um, mm -hmm. could you tell us kind of, if you even know, sometimes this question is really hard to answer. And that's part of the reason I'm going to ask it is because a lot of people here at Music Knowledge find this question hard to answer what's your idea of music career success and or what's your idea of the combination of kind of jobs that you would do in music um for a full-time satisfying music career 
what I think about lately is that if you get up in the morning and you're happy and driven to do whatever you're going to do that day, and then you're making a living at it, that feels like the success that I actually have been looking for. I haven't really felt that for a little while. Um, so for me, let's say I do have a teaching position at a college. And then in between all of that, I get to go play vibraphone with different bands and like festival gigs. I'm thinking like kind of bigger, cool gigs, private gatherings, corporate stuff. I do enjoy that type of gig as well. And finally, having my own group where we are playing my own music. Other groups play my music around the world. And then all of this is me making a living. And I just get up every day being mega motivated to make the next piece. That's awesome. That's a great answer. Because it's, a, it's the combination of your different abilities and your different areas of expertise. Uh, that can become both a paying career, which is kind of, I mean, let's face it, that's one of our biggest bottom lines. It has to feed you. <laughs> yeah. But also the fact that your idea of success, the biggest component, I think, is happiness. That's what people need to, to, to move toward more so than the rock star thing. Yeah, and I've, I alluded to that on the, the festival gigs and whatnot. But um, I, if I back up and I sometimes think if I just teach privately from my own business, it fe makes me feel pretty satisfied and happy as well. And I'm also thinking of people who don't have like the white picket fence thing, the stereotypical perfect successful story, but they're mega happy. And uh, I, I do maybe reach and follow those types of people and friend those types of people so that it'll inspire me to do that same simplistic happiness, if that makes sense. You don't have to go for the white picket fence. Happiness. Sure. I mean, it's important to bring up that everybody's definition of happiness is going to be different and should be, should be different. It should be individualized to you. One of the biggest uh, obstacles that I encounter being a music career educator, as I said in your class, mm -hmm. um, is the obstacle of belief, just believing yeah. that it's even a possibility to be a full-time musician as your legit career. And the biggest reason for that, I think, is that because of what... Uh, popular culture has most promoted as the image of success is either one of these images or the other. The first one is the general kind of everybody image of success, which is the white picket fence with a house and 2.5 children and <laughs> I don't know, insurance or whatever. Yeah. And the other one is rock star, platinum, Grammy winning, MTV VMA winning success. Yeah. Those are the two most common images, I think, 
of success. One of them is non-artist success, which is the white picket fence one. And one of them is the only image of artist success that people that the general public knows exists, or at least it seems like that. Yeah. And I would, I would say that I think I'm just kind of hypothesizing or making up a theory. Maybe that came from the fact that nowadays you have the internet and you can build a fan base and build a career a little bit more easier on your own, more easier. Sorry about the grammar, everybody. And then um, back maybe as this stereotype developed, you kind of had to get a record deal or, you know, most people who we saw on MTV and on the billboards had record deals and stuff. So maybe sure, we were sure. just all developed to believe that was the only way. And I'm kind of feeling like it's swapped. It absolutely has. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I tell people, just like I told your class, stop taking music career advice from people who are not in the music industry. Most people, just your average Joe Schmo, don't know anything about how the arts industries work. And it's okay that they don't know that. It's not their specialty. They just know what they see on TV and TikTok and whatever, or who's on the top 40 playlist and whatever. And that's okay. It's not their expertise. Why should they know? But because they don't know, they only have, you know, the two images of success, the give up music for the white picket fence or the, well, you have to be Bruno Mars. You have to be platinum. You have to be, you know, move to LA or Nashville and pursue a record deal super hard. And, uh, there, there's so much more that exists now. Musicians are empowered to have many different ways to make a living through music. Now, if you take this independent, many different ways approach, which I call freelance mastery, then you're then you're not going to be, you know, you're you're less likely to be platinum, though that's still a possibility. It's not closed off to that, which is the beauty of it. For sure. But you're probably more likely to be doing the music jobs that you can leverage into whatever is your bottom line dream career, which for me, and I think tons of people, is playing your own original music that comes from your heart and soul and making your own records and having your own shows and this and that and have them distributed worldwide, which you can pay 50 bucks a year for a distribution company to do for you. But to get, you can't just be there unless you do have a successful record deal. You, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to just do that. You could go the route of super, super building the fan base and all that stuff, which is awesome. Um, and then you could get as close as you could be to just doing that because you'd be funded through a faithful fan base that wants your original content and that goes on that that sees you on your tours mm-hmm. but i will tell you the most people who do that even if they're really successful at that they also have income coming from somewhere else whether it's 
music business education. Uh, there's an artist called Manifest, M-A-N-A-F-E-S-T. His real name is, uh, his government name is Chris Greenwood. Okay. And he's very successful as an independent artist. And that's his main bread and butter, from what I understand. But he wrote a whole book about how to organize your finances and how to find additional revenue streams and how to find passive revenue streams you know, that, that can also uphold a foundation so that if and when your original music opportunities kind of come and go, because they're always ebbing and flowing, yeah. you, don't, you don't collapse. You have other revenue streams to uh, empower you to continue to be that original artist. And that's kind of my point here with music knowledge is like, listen, I'm not telling you not to do the music from your heart and soul. I'm not even telling you not to pursue the platinum record label thing. What I'm telling you is the reality that you can and the most successful artists do have all of the other jobs within their field that form the foundation for you to be able to comfortably and efficiently and without going broke do whatever is the bottom line job you want to do in music. I agree. And, it, you know, maybe for a little while, if you ask many famous musicians, they'll talk about that barista job or that they swept the floor in the recording studio for a little while before sure. they got sure. to touch the board. And sometimes I think those stories are good. Nowadays, we have the ability to replace that type of job with this foundation you're talking about. So I think it, and it's also like you might even need to kind of do the barista job while building this. But then once this is made, you're exactly right. And I was also thinking, oh, sometimes we need a little break from touring. So you might need to take that weekend off. And now you know your, your rent is paid for because you have some passive income maybe or other streams. Sure. If you're a very successful major label artist, then the passive income comes from tons of royalties and things, so you don't have to tour 365 days a year. If you're not a major label artist, and you still get paid well for your gigs, and you still get paid well for your tours and this and that, you you might not have the the level of passive income generators just from your streams and your merch and stuff in the spirit of not having to come home and work a near minimum wage job again or keep having and then losing jobs because you have one for a while and you got to quit to go on tour and then you got to come home from tour and get a new one and then you got to quit that one to go on tour and then you get a bad reputation as an employee and it's harder for you to find jobs and the cycle continues in the spirit of oh. not doing that this is why i educate people on all of those other additional revenue streams i've built a successful lesson teaching business over many years and when i started doing it i talked to tons of people and said hey you know what teaching lessons is great teaching is freedom because I went on this tour and I went on that tour and I was gone for a month or two, you know, mm -hmm. or nowadays, um, most recently I've been gone for like a week at a time or a weekend at a time or two weeks at a time, um, whatever it is, short or long, you not only are getting paid a lot more for a lot less hours so you can save money, yeah, but also it's not a job that just, 
you got to quit to go somewhere and then come back and beg for your job back, it's always there. I can tell my students, like, they know I'm a professional touring musician. And I can say, hey, I'm touring January, February. So, you know, go ahead and make sure you book your March lessons now before they fill up, because they will. And good, good sales know, thing. Like, here's some stuff to work on in the meantime. And they know that I'm going to come and go every now and then. And so, you know, I can combine that with one of the things that I teach a lot, which is how to charge properly for your gigs so that you profit and don't starve. I can combine that with coming home and still having a full roster of students. And then it's seamless to be able to go tour and to be able to do what I want. Plus, that job I have when I do come home is in music. And it's joyful and it's encouraging. And it keeps me in the studio where I'm already doing what I love. And, you know, it's a catalyst for creative success. And I have even two more benefits that about the private teaching. Tell me. Is that the parents really will understand because sometimes they take a vacation and they feel a little bad that they're they know that they're you're relying on that revenue but if you understand that they take a break they'll understand when you take a break and then the other thing is modeling the thing i sometimes don't like is when there's someone teaching 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 but they don't perform they don't showcase themselves performing in any way i would say i do more through video on youtube more than live but probably three times a year i'm going out live showing the students and the parents yeah this is this is what a professional musician has to do when you prep stuff and you have to play a two three hour show this is what it's about and uh i think the students will then gain a respect and they want like, if you want to do this and learn learn how to go out and play a live show we got to practice our b flat scale do it in all keys all right go buddy Practice you know? your scales, everyone. <laughs> Something that empowers you to be able to do what you love. That's what I keep talking about this book that is wonderful. That's called Real Artists Don't Starve by Jeff. Yeah, Owens. I think I have that upstairs. And this is exactly the type of thing that he's talking about. Michelangelo wasn't phenomenally successful, which one of the things you find out in the book is that he had amassed a fortune which was worth in today's money 47 million dollars but that wasn't yes it's right in the beginning of the book you're gonna get there and it's amazing but he didn't make that from the act of painting itself he loved painting he loved sculpting sculpt sculpting he loved the things in the visual arts that he actually did. And ultimately, that's the root of it all. But that's not the reason he amassed such a fortune. The reason that he did is because of the way that he ran business and that he had a team to delegate jobs to that weren't within his zone of genius, as many business experts call it. Um, okay. You know, and I'm not saying everyone has to amass $47 million. I'm just saying, like, it's not going to, the harsh reality is that it's probably not going to come from only the thing that you're the very, very most passionate about. 
it's probably going to come from that in addition to other empowering income streams that, and I have a, a phrase that I use, that fund your freedom. That fund your freedom to do what you want. If you, if you instead of having that teaching job when you're not performing heavily, if you come back to that barista job, which there's nothing wrong with a barista job at, 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 on its own. Um, yeah. It's not a diss to the job. But when you come back to that company, it's not an, they don't want you to skip town and go on tour for two months. They need somebody to be there at the store making coffees. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. That's what they need. But it's not a match for you. Yeah, I've heard a story of uh, John Mackey is a wind band composer, very famous. And he told me that he had this temp job where they would let him go home if he had a really good idea and he just needed to get that notated and get the wind band stuff started, or maybe it's orchestral, whatever, they would let him, and he would they'd kind of be like, well, all right, can you finish that tomorrow? You know, whatever paperwork you're working on. They would let him leave, and I'm thinking, if you can find something flexible like that, you've scored something that complements a music career nicely, but, you know, not every job is like that. So they're few and far between. And I think you're right that if we mold our own opportunities more in that entrepreneur mindset of doing a private lesson studio or whatever the side gig might be, session musician. Sure. Yeah, I think it is. A, it feels a little bit better than doing the temp job like John Mackey. It was a great situation for him. But... I do like that. But it's not a music job. Yeah, it's like and then and then who are you meeting? You're not meeting people in the industry. You're meeting people at the lawyer's office that you're that I think it was a lawyer that he was saying he'd attempt for. You need to be in your field. And uh, you know, I think you brought up a really good point about flexibility. And that's where I that's where I advise people to start quite often. Is like, okay, if you you know, you can't make music opportunities come out of thin air. It's not something that you can just go apply for and get per se, depending what it is. You can make flexibility appear a little bit more easily, especially today. For me, it, it was, ironically, I had a music job, but it was a miserable music job with a miserable boss, and I was desperate to get out. It was an awful situation for other reasons, but for me, it was Uber driving. You know, okay. it was like, yeah. oh, wait a second. I can get in the car and just drive people places, which is a freaking easy job. You know, I never made any less than 30 bucks an hour. It is a job where you have to be in a bigger city to do. So maybe it's not. Um, so, so it is a little bit location dependent. But if you are in that location and you have a new enough car, which in my state is like 15 years old or newer, it's like they're really loose about it. And you can just do something like that well then you don't yeah. have a boss you don't have a schedule you do it out of necessity but you do it whenever you can and that that level of flexibility is priceless because then you can start taking the music opportunities because they're going to trickle in you know i did the same thing with teaching i started teaching lessons and that was the same level of flexibility and pay that flexibility just made my world. I agree. I've always seek, sought autonomy. And one student of mine has brought up DoorDash. 
one friend of mine has worked DoorDash in that same type of sense. And I might bring up right now that for years I've worked uh, as a leader of a document management division. And it's like in the construction industry. And I was really lucky because it was flexible to a certain extent. Um, there were some times where I probably couldn't take off for, for very long if I had a lot of meetings set up, but I could kind of go home to teach that four o'clock lesson. And if, so, if I, I kept having lessons asking and it's backing up closer to the end of the workday, well, I could take off early. It was, it was, there was an autonomy there that made it work with a music career. That, that job is ending though. Sometimes that's where you have to start. And and by the way, the job ending, I mean, you know, it's tough, but congratulations also because <laughs> you're being thrust into like, okay, where's the music opportunity? Yeah, you know what happened is my boss told me he has seen me smiling more around the office lately because I've known about it for about two months that the they were closing my division. And it was like, I kind of chuckled right then and there. I was like, you're right that there's a little bit of a relief being lifted and that now I'm, I'm, I have this motivation to, to go sell more private lessons and get more private students. I mean, and then sell more, uh, more of my music. You know, and sometimes there's something that's a catalyst for it and it just pushes you in that direction. And, uh, you know, like I said, for me, it was a horrible boss. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't take the negativity anymore. I couldn't be, you know, what some people today would probably consider verbally abused. But back then it was like every boss. <laughs> Dang. And, uh, you know, so I, I lost my tolerance. And thanks to my spouse owning a car, had the opportunity to to go and do the Uber driving thing, which, again, wasn't a music job, but but allowed me to build up the ones that were. And yeah, there's sometimes there's an unexpected catalyst. I always take that as a sign of like, all right, I was afraid and I'm still afraid to just For move sure. toward music. But this is just telling me that I need to and that I'm meant to. Yeah, and I'm glad you got out of that situation. And um, yeah, it's funny how I was totally, I wouldn't have made this move myself. And it, it was just interesting how he said I was smiling. So I was like, maybe I am already feeling the acceptance and a new direction. But again, I'm glad you got out of that situation. That's sound. having a bad boss. Eh, that's not cool. Oh, man, I've done Don't sweat it. I've done it so many times. I've for, for the record, I've had some really great bosses, too. I'm not I'm not anti yeah, shout out. Shout boss. out to the bosses. <laughs> Shout out to my good bosses. I think you know who you are. But, you know, sometimes when you are working um, with people who haven't pursued their own dreams and their own happiness, which happens a lot. You know, I don't want to be cynical, but I think most people probably just do what they're told that they're supposed to. Or they go the practical route. He told me that he was envious of me. Because now I am starting my own business. I'm going into my business for myself. Um, and he said, I wanted to do that years ago. I wanted to open an LLC, doing a plumbing business. And he said he went 
into the corporate world because of the consistent paycheck, because he had a family to take care of. Sure. And it yeah. sounded like he kind of didn't get to try out what maybe was his dream was to really own his own company without getting too much into it. It's because of like corporate changes. So even, even what he has grown up developing in this company is changing. And that's gotta be hard because it's not in his control. It's uh, nice to be our own business owners, everybody. High five. The thing is, the scariest thing and the biggest fear that I encounter from people when pursuing a full-time music career, pursuing their dream, is that you kind of have to be an independent entrepreneur to do it. It's not a job that you can just go get. There might be jobs within it that you applied for and got, um, but but it's really a full-time music career isn't something that you can just go get. You have to create it. You ha have to be an independent entrepreneur. And yeah. that's that's scary. I always get the insurance backlash. Well, I'm I don't get insurance from that job. It's like, honey, you got a lot of bigger fish to fry <laughs> doing this than that. I mean, just working up to it becoming full time is a whole skill in itself. And I'll tell you, the sky's the limit. The great thing is that the sky's the limit. There's no salary cap. There's no limit to how much you can make and how much you can profit. And once you make enough, you can buy your yeah. own damn insurance you know i You're know exactly that's right. i know that's easier said than done i've had both my own private insurance and paid for it myself and i have had my spouse's insurance um from her job depending on who's giving you the insurance and at what level there might not be that huge of a difference between insurance that you purchase yourself and insurance that you get from a job. It's not as scary as people think, and it's definitely not worth not being who you are. Yeah, I'm learning a lot. Like, remember, that company is buying an insurance package. Look up healthcare.gov, look up Obamacare, put your numbers in, and then see how it compares and see what coverage you get. I always thought I just needed to be at a corporation, and I'm. I'm really looking into how I'm going to get insurance options and it's uh, not as scary as I thought. A lot of no. these things aren't. There's there's the other perspective of people who have children. I don't have children. I don't have any intention of having children. So that's not a factor for me personally and that has made people go, "Oh, well you're lucky you. Must be must be nice to not have to worry about da, 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 upholding all these people and this and this and that but you know that that immediate gut reaction comes from fear first of all um there are it is tricky to have conversations with your spouse about wanting to follow your dreams especially if you have children yeah um so then you just have to do it a different way so then maybe you do stay full-time somewhere and you don't have the element of as much flexibility necessarily, but you can talk to your family and dedicate, I don't know, four hours a day, two hours a day, uh, four hours a week. I mean, whatever you can do, because doing some is better than doing none, you know, that is specifically dedicated to moving toward transitioning careers and transitioning, you know, and then maybe more of the, more of the, 
at home type of jobs work better for you to build. Maybe you're going to go hardcore into the sync licensing thing. So all you have to do is sit in one corner of your house and make that music by yourself. And maybe that works better for you as a, as a launching point for music than leaving your house to go teach in-person lessons or something. You know, you just have to find it and craft it to whatever your circumstances are. And people will say, well, that's going to take so much longer. You don't have kids. You can spend eight hours a day doing it. And I can only spend two, you know, or whatever. True. But if you don't start working on it now, you're going to be pissed in two years that you didn't start now because you could have been making steps. You could have been making strides. You know, it doesn't matter if it's going to take a longer time or a shorter time. Isn't it worth it? Even if it took you five years, even if it took you 10 years to transform your entire life, isn't yeah, it worth I, it? Yes. And I am an example of that. I have a 10 year award at this company and I just want to smash it. But I think that's wrong. I think it has, it gave me the ability to self patronize. I'm a big advocate of if you find a nice job that's flexible, that's like not in the industry, it can still self patronize. And so then you can make your own music. You don't have to be working on learning sleigh ride and doing the, the Christmas gigs and doing all of that music to make money. You can just work the job and then make your own music. And this also reminds me of John Acuff wrote a book called Quitter. And it did, he was hopping around from IT job to IT job, kind of quitting each job. But he finally said, okay, time to like write a blog and hustle. And he would get up at 5 a.m. every day and write his blog. And then it took off and then he turned it into a book. And then David Ramsey hired him on staff to be like a staff writer for David Ramsey, the financial advisor guy. And so it's just quitter was always an inspiration to me that he hustled and wrote that blog every morning. And then it, it ended up turning into something. And so all this time I've been hustling and when when I was let go, I had something to fall back on, but I still have to build it up. Believe me, sure. but I had something. One of the most important elements that's been brought up accidentally in this conversation is that despite the fact that there are ways that might work faster than others or might work a little more efficiently than others or whatever. There's no one way to obtain your full-time dream music career. And, you know, I'm always the preacher of quit the nine to five, quit the nine to five, quit the nine to five. But what I should mention is that that isn't actually the only way, because if you, for some reason, have to keep that nine to five for a while, then, you know, like you just mentioned, you can spend whatever time you can using the nine to five to do what I call funding your freedom. That's going to fund your ability to eat and keep a roof over your head or keep that insurance for your kids while you're building the rest of your stuff. It's just that it might work a little bit more slowly because you can spend less hours and that's okay. It uh, might not have the flexibility of the Uber driving thing and whatever, but you can still, you, you can still leverage your salary 
and the regularity of your schedule to fund your ability to have the studio gear and sit in the studio or whatever, even a corner of your living room, whatever you're calling your studio, and pursue those other options. I've seen a lot of people with with side hustles, I would call it. You know, they do have their day job, the nine to five, but then they have other side hustles. And then it's just, when does that side hustle reach a tipping point? And then are they, do they have the balls to actually quit and do do the uh, side hustle full time? I brought up earlier that there was a little bit of fear involved with, I don't want to change. I'm not going to make that move. But, you know, that's the reality is if you are doing it to wait for that side hustle, it is a pretty hard decision. So you have to be ready to make that decision. Sometimes I do say if you're going into a nine to five, maybe avoid like a leadership position where suddenly it looks like there's this carrot that you're chasing after. But go for something like you're an AutoCAD tech and you just draw AutoCAD all day. You don't want to get into where you think you're going to rise up there. You want to rise up here. That's why you're doing it. I had that realization more than once where I got into a management position in food service because I was a restaurant cook for a long time. And yeah. uh, I had that harsh realization of like, oh, shit, now I'm stuck here for like 60 hours a week. Oh. I, I, I took it because I was desperate for more money because I lived on like near minimum wage for like, you know, first 10 years of my adult life, basically. Yeah. I mean, and I was playing professionally. I was a professional musician also. I just didn't know how to get paid for it yet. Okay. <laughs> but so I so I did it twice, accepted the management position because I was just so desperate for money. Yeah. And I thought I could leverage that to make my music career building more comfortable. And it was the opposite. I Suddenly I was stuck there for 60 hours and that 20 extra hours that I had to spend on the music career was gone. And I thought, oh, crap. And I, and I got fired from one of yeah. them and quit the other. Fired. <laughs> and it wasn't quit. right for me. That's not the reason I got fired. It was something stupid. But I didn't vibe with the place anyway because my heart wasn't it. My heart was never in any of those jobs. I tried to do a good job. And it formed a, a passion for the culinary arts and, and business. But it but but you know, if you're just not right there, you're just not right there. And you and don't don't commit to that extra level of not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and then I wanted to bring up that tipping point, that tipping point between like now my music thing is making enough maybe to replace my other my nine to five income. Yeah, that's what a lot of in entrepreneurial circles they call the magic number. What's the magic number? If you're making fifty grand now at the nine to five, do you have to make fifty grand doing the music stuff and then you get to quit? That's a tricky, tricky game because you have to do it for the right reasons. You have to choose that tipping point at the whatever is the right time for you. You want to like also keep your lifestyle and don't let your lifestyle get inflated keep it at the same hustle paycheck to paycheck frugal mindset so that then when you hit the tipping point it's much easier personally i let the lifestyle get a little inflated spending money on frivolous things a little bit so then right away 
when I found out what, about losing my job, it was like no Netflix, no Prime, no Disney Plus, all the monthly bills I needed to get get that gone. Sure, I've had to do that many times. And, you know, it, it, you just have to find, you have to be willing to find the way that works for you at that particular moment. You have to be willing to adapt. You have to be willing to speak to your spouse and the people in your life and tell them that this is what you want to go for and you're serious about it. It's going to be different for everybody. There is no stereotypical path. And do not, I would tell people, do not put all of your eggs in one basket ever. You have to be an entrepreneur. You have to take the same risks that entrepreneurs in any field take. And that's the toughest path for, for musicians to cross. It's the number one thing that keeps them from following their dreams. They understand everything that it's going to take and go, this is too hard. Or my parents will never approve. My spouse will never approve. I don't think this is realistic enough. It's not practical. It's not this. I need a backup plan. I need an alternative. I need, you know, all, all of this language that's been, that's culturally so common. Yep. I was told, you know, go get the teaching degree because that's practical. And the whole time I had my professor, my percussion professor, almost whispering in my ear, like, you could always do performance. <laughs> and people who know Mr. Rosen know his voice. You could do performance. He knew that I had a passion for composition and performance, but he also understood the decision to get the teaching degree for the practicality. Uh, you're totally right. You know, I think it's practical if, you're, if your end goal is to be a college professor, if your end goal is to be the high school band instructor or this and that, that's what that's made for. But True. if that's not your specific end goal, it, then it doesn't, if you're not specific, then it doesn't matter. When I applied to be approved to teach lessons at this place or that place or the other place, even the place that was the most strict with their qualifications, which I appreciated them being because they have really good teachers. I'm talking about LessonFace.com, everybody, LessonFace.com. Oh. They're, they're, they're very stringent about how they vet their teachers, which is awesome. But even that place, the strictest place that I went to, didn't specify what kind of degree I needed to have. I think they were happy that I had a music degree, mm -hmm. but I don't know if that was strictly a requirement. And I don't know if they, I don't think they cared if it was music performance or music education or music this or music that or music that. It happens to be music business, which if anyone doesn't know, that is a full music major with a business minor. So I had to do everything that a music major had to do. Sometimes people hear that and they go, oh, so you don't really know how to play. You just studied the business. Well, no, it's Ooh. a full music major <laughs> <laughs> with a business minor lumped together into what they call a music business degree. But I don't think they're not, not going to be as specific as people think they are. That's the scary language that gets tossed around is like, oh, degree, 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 degree. And if you don't. And you know what's funny is I did a business minor for a little while and then I got like pretty bad grades to be honest like a D plus in a class I think and then they said you need to ace all of your classes the rest of your my classes in your minor or else this won't level out you can so I didn't end up getting that minor 
But then I ended up working in a business management career for 14 years. So it even worked the other way around where it was just because of my connections, I was able to get this sales job and then learn by doing. And then actually learning the sales job taught me a lot about how I would sell maybe a gig or sell music. So it's interesting how it also went the other way. And then I heard, uh, you know, I'm looking around, I'll be honest. And I heard that in the health industry, like they like seeing a master's and they like seeing a bachelor's. And if you're like a tech and you know the building really, really well, they still want to see the bachelor's degree. And I was like, wow, how peculiar I would have thought they wouldn't have cared. So it, it's like different in every industry, I guess I'm saying. The pursuit of a music career, I think, is more an entrepreneurial pursuit than anything else. You don't need any formal education to be an entrepreneur. That's not what I'm doing now is not the reason I got the degree. <laughs> in fact, I don't yeah. I don't know if I know the reason I got the degree anymore, probably because I finally had success at college at MATC, which was a two-year program. Took me three, but it was a two-year program. And and it was the first time I had any kind of academic success ever after in my third, it was my third attempt at college. And okay. uh, I think that just finally having some success motivated me to want to know more. And that's why I took it. It wasn't because of the piece of paper said bachelor's. Has it helped me in some circles? Prob- probably. Would I have gotten there without that specific degree? Absolutely, because I've learned probably a master's degree level of things <laughs> revolving around entrepreneurship and music itself and all of that together since college. I just kept pursuing the knowledge. So, you know, it doesn't have to be in the form of, de- of a degree in this industry. And if you do have a degree, that's great. I hope it helped you. I hope you did it for the right reasons. Um, And that can be a wealth of knowledge that's going to help you as well. But, you know, a wealth of knowledge comes so many different ways. And this is not a regulated industry. Nobody said, you know, for better and for worse, right? Like, think about what the word manager means in music. It's the most undefined, loosey-goosey, corrupted, misused title sure (laughs) nobody's looking for a degree i know tons of people who do it who don't know anything about the art form or the industry and are still calling themselves managers you know it's like it, it can take a negative turn in some sense but also don't look at it that way look at it as your opportunity uh to take a professional um position without having to meet like some really nitpicky specific accolade I agree. I think that there's too much pressure put on that. And I think if someone is an entrepreneur in their music field, they're thinking about their bike wheel with the spokes. And then I, I get this in music business class. Suddenly they're like, wow, I could have a mastering service. I could have a beat making service. I could have mixing, okay, live recording, doing live sound. And suddenly I have these more on the engineering side of things, maybe picturing how many streams of revenue they can have. And then, ding, they're they're in the entrepreneur mindset right there. 
And then going back to the Michelangelo thought, you don't have to do every one of those things. Some of those things you might outsource as part of your service because you're not the master at it. That was a really good thing in that book uh, with the Michelangelo thought, right? That's what it comes down to when you are an entrepreneur. That's how you become successful independently, is that eventually you reach a tipping point where you can outsource. Mm -hmm. Even if your only pursuit is making your original music and whatever, you might reach a tipping point where you've like built up the fan base and, and really hit those streaming algorithms and you're making an income. Maybe. It's hard to do, maybe. but maybe. And then you can outsource somebody else to make your album art and to do your to do your PR and to do your uh, to shop you to uh, playlists to get you more to to do anything that an artist has to do design the merch do the mastering you name it yeah totally hire an accountant hire a publicist hire a radio plugger and then you keep branching out and if you get really really good people they help you more than if you were to do it yourself and i definitely know i need to do i need to learn these lessons in certain categories like but also you got to wait for that tipping point sometimes you do have to have the cash flow yeah i mean it's it's a delicate dance because depending on what services you need um they may be more or less expensive they may be easier or harder to outsource and there may be different times in your career when you decide to outsource them um, but that is a big part of growth and scaling from a business perspective. One of the big conclusions that I think we've come to in this roundabout set of conversations here mm -hmm. is that in order to meet the ultimate goal, the focus of, of the music knowledge community, which is working in music full-time, doesn't necessarily mean full-time hours, but making a full-time income in just music good point you're going to have to have most likely you know like 95 percent likely you're going to have to have a balance between doing whatever is your bottom line music job which i think for a lot of people is just enjoying making their own music both recorded and performed and doing the music jobs that are in your field and fund your ability to be free to do what you want. Fund your freedom. That's what Ooh. I say when I when I come into this studio and sometimes I take on jobs that are not completely in my zone of genius. So I have to exert extra energy and do some research and this and that and that's tiring. Whenever I reach that point, I say out loud right here, thank you for funding my freedom. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of your insight. You're welcome. It's an honor. It's been fun kind of like picking each other's brains. We could do that for hours. And it's so, it, all of this information from your experiences is so valuable for people to hear. I hope it helps anybody who might be going through, but if they're going through that tipping point or going through a job loss thing, I truly do. I hope it helps them. People's different perspectives and people's different experiences with this are priceless because I know there's someone listening just like me. I, this happens all the time where, you know, you hear what the, the steps were that somebody took to get to 
or at least closer to that full-time music life. And you go, wow, I, I didn't think that was a possible step that you could take. I didn't think that fit into this puzzle. Or maybe that makes me feel like my ideas aren't so crazy. Or maybe I can get there too, just like this regular person. I mean, you know, for lack of a better term, you and I are just regular old schmucks, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And if we think about those rock stars where we said stereotypical success, ask them their story you'll be surprised. It's typically really down to earth and inspiring. Absolutely. And I'm not talking about, I don't think you're talking about the glamorized, you know, kind of Hollywood tinted version of extraordinary musician story. I think you're talking about the real one, the unfiltered. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I love it. Oh I, my love God. Being, I like being starstruck and then suddenly realizing they're just like us. That's so valuable. People are just people. So in conclusion, uh, remind us of your where we can find your music again. My name is Mike Newmeyer. I'm Mike Newmeyer on YouTube, New Music on Instagram, and I think my new YouTube tag is New Music with one M instead of two M's. And then my newest album, Starting to Dream, it's coming out on vinyl. I just got the email, and the vinyl are, I'm third in line to be pressed. Nice. And then that's nice. available. You can order it on Bandcamp, and it's streaming on all streaming services. Thanks so much to Mike Newmeyer for sharing his many strategies for growing his customized music career. Everyone is so different, and Mike always reminds me that there's not just one way of doing this music thing. Thanks for listening, and I hope this reminds you to be open to turning your own ideas and interests into a beautiful career. Head to those links in this episode's description to hear Mike's music and more. This is Emily Zimmer signing off, and I hope you check out more episodes of the Music Knowledge Podcast. Hey, sorry for the interruption. First, thanks so much for listening. If you love what you're hearing, it really does help if you leave a positive review. If you're enjoying this podcast, if you're finding this information helpful, if you like our guest interviews or anything else, I'm kindly asking you to please leave a positive review on whatever streaming platform you're using. It really does help me continue to put out the best content I can for working musicians. Of course, I'd love to keep this thing going and keep helping musicians like yourself, so I thank you for making this easy contribution. Well, let's head back to the show. Hey, listeners. You may have heard me mention my first big successful music job, which was teaching lessons. I couldn't have made my teaching business so successful without some important tools and resources that helped me massively along the way. I want to share my favorite tool for folks who teach fretted instruments like guitar, bass guitar, ukulele, and mandolin. It's called Guitar Pro. And this is the best software I've ever found for creating and editing sheet music for my students. With Guitar Pro, you can create tabs, standard notation, chords with rhythm notation, and so much more. You can even play the sheet music with virtual instruments, adjust the playback speed, 
bounce the audio as an MP3 and more. It even has a built-in metronome, tuner, and chord and scale libraries. If that's not enough, there's also a Guitar Pro app for tablets and phones, so you can take your interactive sheet music anywhere. Folks, this is so great, I can't say enough about it. Just for being a faithful listener, I want to give you a 15% discount on Guitar Pro. It's easy. Just click the Guitar Pro link in this episode's description and use the promo code MUSICKNOWLEDGE for your 15% off. That's right, just click the Guitar Pro link in this episode's description and use the promo code MUSICKNOWLEDGE for 15% off. To my listeners who teach guitar lessons or anyone who has kids, I have to share my favorite kids instrument with you. I love this instrument so much and my students had years of fun and success with this. It's called the Lug Guitar. The Lug Guitar is this stripped down, three string, kid sized, real guitar that kids can play on day one. I know because I taught hundreds, literally hundreds of kids to play this instrument. Now this is not a toy, the Lug guitar is a real, well-made, tunable, playable guitar that is tuned the same as the first three strings on a traditional six string. That's right, you get the E, B, and G strings, so you can make all of your major and minor chords. They come in acoustic and electric varieties with a built-in amplifier. All Lug guitars come with flashcards and picks, and there is a free Lug app for Android and iOS. The app is so cool. It's got games, play along songs, chord learning activities, and kids can create their very own Lug monster. You'll see what I mean when you get it. You can also become a Lug certified educator. And the Lug YouTube channel has a free lesson series taught by yours truly. I've never seen kids learn faster or enjoy themselves more on any other instrument. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Take it from me, I taught lessons for 15 years. Click the Lug Guitars link in this episode's description to learn more. That's right, click that Lug Guitars link in this episode's description to learn more. 